from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is actually from the 21st chapter of Genesis. I'll read verses 8 through 21. Hear now God's word. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second text, also from the lectionary this morning, comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the sixth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Continue to hear God's word to you and to me. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him so the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. But whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, for your goodness and grace, we say thank you. We'd ask that through the proclamation of your word, we would see your goodness in fresh new ways. That the expressions of your goodness may be met with fresh eyes. So that we may know you more deeply and live into your mission and purpose for this world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with this. All Christians believe the death penalty is wrong. All Christians believe in the just war theory. All Christians believe Christians should only be married to other Christians. All Christians are Republicans. All Christians believe that women are equal to men and can be ordained to the pastoral ministry of the church. All Christians believe in the uniqueness of Christ. If you don't believe in him, then you will not be with him in all eternity. These kinds of remarks land awkwardly, don't they? To speak definitively, categorically, and universally on behalf of 2.3 billion Christians, that's one-third of the world's population, most certainly demonstrates a basic ignorance and a lack of awareness regarding the diverse expressions of the faith, the plural ways in which people live out the Christian gospel in different contexts throughout the world. There is variance. There is plurality. There is difference. There is diversity. The same can be said not just about Christianity, but also about the other two great Abrahamic traditions, Judaism and Islam. It is misguided, I think, to speak definitively, categorically, universally about these faith expressions as well. Many Christians, however, do not apply the same plural lens uh, to these great traditions as we would our own especially the Christian's engagement with Islam and the Muslim believer. In a post-9-11 world, there tends to be 
a myopic or monolithic approach to the 1.8 billion Muslims across the globe. All Muslims are X. All Muslims are Y. All Muslims are Z. All Muslims believe this. All Muslims believe that. And just as it is wrongheaded to apply such universalizing statements to Christianity, so it is, I would suggest, to apply that same rationale to Islam. I find the words of Abraham Musa, a South African Muslim scholar, uh, to be quite helpful. He says, no one has seen Islam in its transparent glory to really judge it. But what we have seen are Muslims, good Muslims and bad Muslims, ugly Muslims and pretty Muslims, just Muslims and unjust Muslims, Muslims who are oppressors, racists, bigots, misogynists, and criminals, as well as Muslims who are compassionate, liberators, seekers of an end to racism and sexism, and those who aspire for global justice and equality. We could do a one-to-one -one substitute, couldn't we? With the word Muslim and insert there Christianity or Christian, and this paragraph would remain true. For no one has seen Christianity in its transparent glory to really judge it. What we have seen are good Christians and bad Christians. Christians who are oppressors racists, bigots, misogynists, and criminals, as well as Christians who are compassionate, liberators, seekers of an end to racism and sexism, and those who aspire for global justice and equality. Right here in our own backyard lives one of the foremost scholars of world Christianity and Islam. His name is Dr. John Azuma. He's a native of Ghana, and he's on the faculty of Columbia Theological Seminary. Dr. Azuma says that one of the greatest challenges when it comes to Christian witness in the 21st century is how individual Christians and the Christian church as a whole in its various contexts and its various settings will engage Islam and the Muslim believer. I've spent time at the outset of this sermon on these matters because one, I believe Dr. Azuma is right about our Christian witness in the 21st century, that how we engage Muslims, how we engage Islam is part of our witness of the gospel. And two, our lectionary text from this morning, Genesis 21, and the countless interpretations that have followed within both Judaism and Christianity have shaped in part our starting place for engaging Islam, for engaging the Muslim believer. And so let's retrace this story. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. This covenant says that, that his name would be great and that through his family line, all the peoples of the world, all the peoples of the world, would be blessed. God also covenanted to provide a land for Abraham's offspring so that he would be uh, the father to many nations. Now that sounds good on paper, uh, but for Abraham and his wife Sarah, old age was a, a major impediment to the realization of God's promise. And so enter Hagar, Sarah's 
handmaiden of Egyptian origin. At Sarah's request, the aged couple took the fulfilling of God's promises into their own hands. And Abraham took Hagar as his wife. She became pregnant, and she gave birth to Abraham's first son, a boy that he would name Ishmael. Now, Ishmael is a prominent member of the family tree of the prophet Muhammad, and he's considered to be the father of the Arab people. And he's named in the Quran as one of the great patriarchs of the Islamic faith. If you were here last week, you heard our colleague from Kenya, Reverend Peter Karayuki, preach about how God did keep God's covenantal promise with the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. And it's with that birth that, that more tensions, deeper tensions and questions emerge within this already complex story. Namely, there's going to be a tension between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and a question about what will become of this boy Ishmael. How does this boy fit into God's plans? And here's what we know from Scripture. It's through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the covenant that God made with Abraham will be realized in history. The Genesis authors focus on Isaac. They stay honed in on his family story. And with the exception of another reference in Genesis, when Abraham dies, that both Isaac and Ishmael help bury their father, there's another reference in, in First Chronicles, but it just simply lays out Ishmael's genealogy. We don't hear about him throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The writers just move away from his story and focus on the story of Isaac. And what's interesting to note is that up until the 7th century uh, AD, Jewish interpretations of the Hagar-Ishmael narrative were at best favorable to Hagar and her son, and at worst, ambivalent as to the role they play in this Genesis text. But in the seventh century, things begin to change. Interpretation begins to shift. The prophet Muhammad dies, and the expansion of Arab control and rule of the Middle East through military conquests takes shape. And in 636 AD, Jerusalem falls to Muslim invaders. And immediately, almost overnight, interpretations of Genesis 21 become almost exclusively negative toward Hagar and Ishmael. Up until that point, there was a favorability and an ambivalence at work in interpretations. But now, since the Muslim invasion of Jerusalem, Hagar and Ishmael are demonized. Of course, this makes sense in human history, doesn't it? Human beings demonize their enemies not only through a contemporary critique of their actions, but also by recasting their origin stories in a negative light. Christians have, do have done that to Jews and Muslims. Jews have done that to Muslims and Christians. Muslims have done it to Christians and Jews, even though all three faiths come from Abraham. So we turn to Genesis 21 as this story unfolds. 
And I think we would do well if we consider what God does in this text. So often we get caught up with what Abraham and Sarah are doing. Let's focus on what God is doing and maybe get a sense of who we're called to be in the 21st century and our witness of the Christian gospel. It's possible that by the time Isaac is weaned, Ishmael is in his late teens. It's, it's dependent on how you do the math, but, but there is most likely a 14-year age difference between Ishmael and Isaac. And this tension, as I referenced earlier, intensifies in Genesis 21.9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac. Remember that phrase, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. Again, pay attention to this phrase, playing with her son Isaac. That's what captures Sarah's eye. This word that we translate from the Hebrew to the word playing is actually the same Hebrew word that's attributed to Sarah when she overhears God's plan to help them have a baby. We translate it earlier in the English to laugh. Sarah laughed at the promise that God had made. It's the same exact word. You can infer that, that this word is translated in different ways. It, it, it can mean play. It can mean laugh. It can also mean mock. But what's interesting about Hebrew is that there's no direct object in this phrase. There's no direct object. So where Sarah laughed, Ishmael plays. Or Ishmael laughs. Or possibly Ishmael Mocks. But what is so fascinating is that if you look at various translations and interpretations post-7th century A.D., you discover rationale that says Sarah wanted to cast the boy and his mother out because Ishmael was harming Isaac in some way. That he was making fun of him. That he was mocking him because he was the firstborn. Some translations and some interpretations even go as far as to say that Ishmael was abusing Isaac. That's how interpretations shifted because of what was happening geopolitically. But all it says in the text, all it says in the Hebrew is that Ishmael laughed or Ishmael played. These interpretations that have come from the 7th century demonize him and in many ways fuel the animosity both Jewish and Christian interpreters have had for Arabs and Muslims from the 7th century on. But what if, what if Ishmael is not actually the antagonist in this story? What if he's not the antagonist? What if Sarah and Abraham are? What if the sin in this story is not believing there was enough grace to go around for both Isaac and Ishmael? What if Sarah believed that God wasn't big enough 
for both Isaac and Ishmael to find grace and purpose and place in God's plan. Right, once again, she kind of repeats behavior. Abraham repeats behavior. They want to take matters into their own hands. And she hatches a plan to send the boy and his mother away. And this, says the writer, greatly distressed Abraham. Because up until this point, it's not assumed that, that Ishmael and Hagar would leave the household. For all we know is that Abraham believed Ishmael and Hagar would be part of his household for the long haul. But then God speaks. God instructs Abraham to send the boy and his mother off with the knowledge, though, that God will make a great nation out of him. That God makes a promise to Abraham. In other words, God has a future for this boy. God has a future for his offspring, despite Sarah's plan to cast them out. But we have to be clear here. It wasn't God's plan to cast them out. It was Sarah's plan. And God allows it. Just like God allowed Abraham to take Hagar as his wife and to, for them to have a child together, that wasn't God's plan, but God allowed it and God continues to move within human choices, even when those human choices are filled with doubt, even when those human choices lack grace. God has a plan for Isaac, but God also has a plan for Ishmael. And so the mother and the son, they're, they're sent out into the wilderness. Now we have to pause here for just a second. And I want you to think, if you were uh, an Israelite and, and you were living in the wilderness post-Egyptian slavery, or you had just been displaced from your homeland during the Babylonian captivity and you're far from home, and you read this story of someone being cast out into the wilderness without a home, who will you sympathize with? Sarah and Abraham? Or will you sympathize with Hagar and Ishmael? Because you know the wilderness road. You know what it's like to be displaced from home. You would potentially sympathize with the plight of Hagar and Ishmael because their experience was, in fact, your existential reality. And so when the rabbi would read this text... It is not far-fetched to think that the original, or the hearers during this time, rather, would hear a word that connects them with the casting out of Hagar and Ishmael. You might even stand in judgment over Abraham and Sarah for the ways in which they cast them aside. And maybe that is part of the point the narrator is trying to communicate. Maybe we are to hold Abraham and Sarah's action in contempt in a similar way, we hold their disbelief in contempt. It wouldn't be the first time that we point to the, uh, the great patriarch and matriarch of our faith and say, yeah, they didn't quite get it right here. They didn't believe God. Maybe the same thing is happening in verse 21. Far from lending moral or ethical approval on Abraham and Sarah's decision to cast Hagar and Ishmael out, the author quickly moves to their needs. This is so interesting. The author doesn't off offer a moral claim, doesn't assign blame or sin to Hagar and Ishmael. 
all the author is concerned about is what God is going to do with this little family. And God responds. Did you hear that in the text? God responds to their needs. For despite the lack of grace in Abraham and Sarah's action, God believes there's enough grace to go around. God protects the boy. God provides for the boy and his mother's needs. God makes a great nation out of him. God does exactly what God does. God does exactly what God does when the people that God loves are in trouble. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, God met their needs. When they were wandering far from home, displaced, exiled, God made a way for a homecoming. That's who God is, even with Ishmael. And here is the question for the modern Christian. Is there enough grace to go around in the 21st century for Ishmael's offspring? Is there enough grace to go around for the Muslim? Let's extend it. Is there enough grace to go around for the Jew? Is there grace, enough grace rather, to go around for the pagan? Is there enough grace to go around for the atheist? Remember the words of Paul in Romans 6, that death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. For all. Not some, for all. Not people of European heritage. Not citizens of the United States of America. Not Presbyterians. Not even Christians. No, he died for all. There is enough grace to go around in the gospel. Enough grace to go around to experience peace with all peoples. There is enough grace to go around, I say, Presbyterians, who are reluctant sometimes to share our faith. There's enough grace to go around to proclaim in word and in deed what God has done in and through the Lord Jesus Christ in opening this grace to all people so that all people would have a choice, opportunity to respond to what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do once and for all in making Christ king. As Christians, may we live this truth and live as if there is, in fact, enough grace to go around. Amen. In a world that almost craves dissonance, conflict, animosity in various forms. The Church of Jesus Christ has a particular witness and mission to the peace and the grace of God. You can apply this question, is there enough grace to go around, uh, to many relationships we have, whether they're more public or more private. It could be even with someone in the Christian tradition that, that you haven't believed there's enough grace to go around. The world needs a witness that demonstrates God's blessing and God's goodness and God's peace for all. So may we pray and the power of the Holy Spirit fill us to be those witnesses. And now may the peace of Christ, which goes beyond all understanding, and Christ's grace, 
abide with you this day and all the days ahead. Amen.